0: From NPR News in Washington, D.C. This is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, Ron Elving, as a debt ceiling agreement is reached, and scores of people have died in a train derailment in India. The Writers Guild strike what's off, what's on, and what won't be produced in the months ahead and Luis Alberto Urrea's new novel, Goodnight Irene, inspired by his mother and her friend who drove a Red Cross donut truck to the front lines of Patton's army during World War II. The author was told by his mother's old friend.
1: She said the thing that launched the book. She said, I drove the truck, but your mother brought the joy.
0: First, we have our newscast. Today is Saturday, June 3rd, 2023.
2: Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. President Biden is expected to sign that bipartisan bill that suspends the debt ceiling until 2025 today. During his address to the nation last night, Biden said the U.S. had avoided disaster through political compromise. Here's NPR's Tamara Keith.
3: It was Biden's first Oval Office address, meant to send a signal about the seriousness of the crisis that was averted.
4: It was critical to reach an agreement, and it's very good news for the American people. No one got everything they wanted, but the American people got what they needed. We averted an economic crisis, an economic collapse.
5: In many
3: ways, this was a victory lap for a president who has long prided himself on being able to get big bipartisan deals. He even praised House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and his team for negotiating in good faith. After laying low during the peak of the negotiations, Biden used his address to get the last word. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House.
2: Even though the debt ceiling bill is expected to become law today, the Fitch Rating Agency says the U.S. is still at risk of a credit rating downgrade. Following the congressional passage of the debt limit agreement, there was relief on Wall Street. The Dow and the Nasdaq each ended the week up 2%. NPR's David Gurra reports that markets were also buoyed by a better-than-expected jobs report for the month of May.
6: As the debt limit deal worked its way through Congress, Wall Street remained optimistic, even though lawmakers didn't have much wiggle room. The Treasury Department said that absent an agreement, the U.S. could have trouble paying its bills starting on June 5th. Yields on shorter-term government bonds edged higher. Well, Fitch Rating says that even with the deal, the United States' AAA credit rating is still at risk. The agency says it's worried about how political polarization affects policymaking, and also about the debt and deficits. According to new data from the Labor Department on Friday, the U.S. economy added 339,000 jobs in May. That's almost
2: 150,000 more than forecast. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is warning that a war over Taiwan would devastate the global economy, and he's reiterating his call for an immediate military dialogue with China. Speaking at Asia's biggest annual security summit in Singapore, Austin said a conflict over the self-ruled island was neither imminent nor inevitable. He also accused China of reckless action in the South China Sea.
7: People's Republic of China continues to conduct an alarming number of risky intercepts of U.S., and allied aircraft flying lawfully in international airspace. So we will support our allies and partners as they defend themselves against coercion and bullying. To be clear, we do not seek conflict or
2: confrontation. Austin spoke as the U.S. and Canada each sailed a warship through the disputed Taiwan Strait to highlight freedom of navigation. This is NPR.
8: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The Spencer Fire Chief says a fire that engulfed a historic church in the central Massachusetts town likely was caused by a lightning strike. The fire was reported yesterday afternoon at the First Congregational Church, which was built in 1863. Nearly 100 firefighters from around 18 departments responded to the scene. No one was injured, but the building's a total loss. Its remains were torn down last night. The cannabis company TrueLeave, will lay off 128 employees in Massachusetts. That's according to a notice Trulieve filed with the state and a company press release. The company will close retail stores in Worcester, Framingham, and Northampton by the end of this month. TrueLeave also plans to close its growing processing and testing facility in Holyoke by the end of the year. That closure will affect 90 employees. Today, divers will propel themselves off the roof of the Institute of Contemporary Art. Red Bull Cliff Diving is back in Boston to kick kick off its World Series. 24 elite divers will dive into the harbor from heights of up to 90 feet. Orlando Duque organizes the event. He says Red Bull chose Boston as its only U.S. stop because of the energy in the city.
9: Boston is the city that it really feels sports. You know, you have all the big teams here. The fans are really follow and, and they're really passionate. So we kind of wanted to to get a little piece of that, kind of join in on that, on that feeling with all the fans.
8: Later this month, the divers will head to Paris. It's 52 degrees in Boston. A high surf advisory is in effect through tomorrow night. Some showers around today, breezy, and temperatures in the mid-50s.
10: This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Babson College, the Babson MBA helps you become a professional who takes action, leads with confidence, and tackles complex global challenges. Acquire the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset with a Babson MBA, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Visit babson.edu MBA. And the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at Lodestarfoundation.org.:
0: This is weekend edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thanks for being with us. President Biden last night delivered his first primetime address from the Oval
4: Office. The only way American democracy can function is through compromise and consensus. And that's what I work to do as your president. You know, to forge bipartisan agreement where it's possible and where it's needed.
0: The president got the agreement that he desired and worked for in the debt ceiling. Following every little twist and turn of this, of course, has been NPR senior editor and correspondent Ron Elving. Ron, thanks so much for being with us.
11: Good to be with you, Scott.
0: The debt ceiling is uh, about to be signed, sealed and delivered. Was last night's speech what amounts to a victory lap?
11: Well, if Biden doesn't deserve one now, it's hard to imagine when he will. In the last few days, he has seen overwhelming bipartisan support in the House, in the Senate, for his deal to lift the debt limit. It was a deal he'd struck with Republican Speaker Kevin McCarthy, a deal McCarthy could sell to Republicans in the House, yet also a deal Biden could sell to enough House Democrats that they actually provided more votes for the deal than the majority Republicans did. Biden had a big assist there from House Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries. So the center held, and there is more than enough credit to go around for all those involved. Uh, Biden did make that crucial point in his speech last night, the dependence on compromise. It's never an applause line to say that. It's not the fuel for a fiery speech, but it's a plain statement of fact. You need some kind of common ground. With so many competing and contradictory claims of individual Americans— They need to be modified to accommodate as many of them as possible. And more good news, Scott, 339,000 new jobs reported in May. And yesterday, the financial markets applauded with the best day they've had in a long time.
0: President Biden made a point of commending House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Uh, How does Speaker McCarthy look after struggling to get this job?
11: Fair to say the heaviest lifting in this whole deal fell to McCarthy over the past several weeks. And in this crisis, he looked as masterful as he had looked weak in January when it took those 15 ballots to get him elected. Uh, McCarthy worked his own party with a lot of savvy. He kept his friends close and his enemies closer, if you will, to reference the old Godfather movies. Uh, That gave him several key allies in the home stretch, Uh, People whose own careers have benefited from McCarthy being Speaker, and he managed to divide his detractors and rivals. Uh, In some cases, there were special issues important to individual Republicans, many of them MAGA conservatives. McCarthy could address these, and even if they were adamantly opposed to the deal, in the end, they were willing to stand by their personal debts to McCarthy.
0: Ron, despite uh, this win for President Biden, the list of candidates who are eager to run against him as a Republican next year is growing.
11: We are expecting announcements next week from former Vice President Mike Pence, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, and billionaire Doug Burgum, who is also the current governor of North Dakota. Uh, We usually see a lot of ambition in the Senate, and it is still there. But for the moment, the people running are largely current or former governors. Uh, Starting, of course, with Florida's Ron DeSantis, uh, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, uh, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson. Uh, There's also been considerable support in the party for several other current governors. Uh, We're probably going to see
0: the field continue to grow. Why not just get behind one candidate to try and take on Donald Trump? Uh, That would work if it were a shared goal. But, of course,
11: each candidate thinks they should be the one that others bow to when the others all bow out. Uh, That could still happen. We saw the Democrats consolidate behind Biden in 2020, but for now, it does function as a gift to Trump. It's a replay of the huge field we saw in 2016, a field that let Trump dominate the primaries with way less than half the vote overall. Uh, Right now, Trump has to be the heavy favorite of Republican primaries, at least in the polls. But as legal entanglements continue, there may be more indictments soon, perhaps first in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. So this bears watching, and it's going to get more complicated rather than less.
0: NPR's Ron Elving, thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. One of the worst train disasters in decades occurred in India last night. More than 280 people are dead and about 900 injured after two passenger trains collided. The state where the crash took place has declared a day of mourning. Reporter Shalu Yudov joins us from Delhi. Thanks very much for being with us.
12: Good morning, Scott.
0: Can you tell us what happened?
12: Well, this horrific accident happened late on Friday evening in the eastern state of Odisha in Balasore district, that's about 140 miles from Kolkata, when multiple coaches of a passenger train derailed before being struck by another passenger train, which in turn derailed as well. Now, there's a third train, a freight train, that's believed to be involved in the accident as well. Visuals on the television and social media show the coaches and the wreckage still lying on the railway tracks, dead bodies being carried away from the spot, even as the scale of this tragedy is still panning out. Now, we have one of the survivors on tape, though, unfortunately, we don't have his name. Gari <laughs> party He said he woke up from the impact once the train derailed and saw multiple people piled on top of one another. When he left his carriage, he saw someone had lost their hand, another person had lost their leg, and someone else's face was disfigured. Officials say the death toll is expected to rise further as more bodies are found. The cause of the accident is yet to be ascertained. A probe has been ordered and the Prime Minister held a high-level meeting to review the situation. He's visiting the site today
0: hundreds of people are reported to be injured how how are the local authorities in odisha prepared to handle all the people who need help
12: first well, the authorities as well as the hospitals are completely overwhelmed there have been more than 200 ambulances there taking the injured to the hospitals those who survive have been looking desperately for their loved ones and locals are rushing in large numbers to donate blood at the hospitals. In fact, they had been helping the rescue teams and provided them with supplies of food and water overnight. The National Disaster Response Force, along with the Rapid Action Force and police forces, had all been working against the clock, as every minute is precious to save lives in such situations.
0: India's railway network is huge, and dozens of accidents happen every year, uh, some of them deadly. Uh, What kind of efforts are are going on to try and improve safety?
12: Yes, that's right, Scott. Uh, India's railway network is uh, actually one of the oldest and largest in the world. It's always a work in progress. And yes, accidents are very common, despite the government investing hundreds of millions of dollars to improve the infrastructure. The latest accident is believed to be the worst India has seen in the last two decades. Now, such mishaps are mostly blamed on human error or outdated signaling equipment.
0: And we have to ask if there are any uh, political implications from this disaster that might occur.
12: Well, Prime Minister Narendra Modi has been getting a flack on social media for the negligence that often causes such tragedies. People are asking why the government is spending more on high-speed trains when the older passenger trains remain outdated and prone to disasters. But politically, such tragedies often bring all parties together to look for solutions and immediate relief for victims. Even so, there are calls for the resignation of the railway minister, as many are saying that he should take responsibility for this tragedy.
0: Journalist Shalu Yadav in Delhi, thanks so much for being with us.
12: Thank you, Scott.
0: I saw a video on Instagram this week of a mountain climber swaddled to the back of the Sherpa guide who helped rescue him. Gelger-Sherpa says he was guiding a client toward the summit of Mount Everest last month when he noticed another climber hanging onto a rope alone in what's called Everett's Death Zone. These are the highest reaches where temperatures can drop below minus 30 degrees Celsius where human cells begin to die without oxygen. Gelger-Sherpa halted the climb of his own client then. He retrieved the freezing stranger left hanging for his life and hauled him for about six hours to an area called the South Coal, where another guide joined in the rescue. We wrapped the climber in a sleepy mat, Gelja Sherpa posted, dragged him on the snow or carried him in turns on our backs to Camp 3, which is still more than 7,000 meters high. A helicopter met them to lift the stranded climber down to base camp. He was taken to a hospital and has since returned home to Malaysia. His identity has not been released. But you don't need to know who he is to consider him the luckiest man on the tallest mountain on earth 12 people have died trying to climb Mount everest this year another five are missing climbing everest has of course always been dangerous but a former nepali government official told the guardian newspaper this season the weather conditions were not favorable climate change is having a big impact in the mountains A recent survey found that just since the 1990s, the highest glacier on Mount Everest has lost 2,000 years of ice. At the same time, the mountain has gotten more crowded. Nepali issued a record number of permits this season, and local guides complain that too many of those go to inexperienced climbers who can afford to pay tens of thousands of dollars for licenses, oxygen equipment, and skilled guides, but may lack the skills they need to climb the world's highest peak and make it back down safely. We don't know how the Malaysian climber found himself in peril, but two men who grew up in and know those mountains saw a stranger in danger and risked their own lives to save him. As Gelja Sherpa posted, saving one life is more important than praying at the monastery. To NPR News.
8: This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 8:18. Coming up in about 20 minutes, you'll get the story from Colorado on the Mike, the Headless Chicken Festival.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Perkins School for the Blind, global leader in education for children with disabilities. Help more of them access education at Perkins.org/slash-changing-lives. Boston Ballet's The Sleeping Beauty. On stage now through June 4th at the Citizens Bank Opera House. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com.
8: Join WBUR this coming Thursday, June 8th at the Somerville Theater for the Moth main Stage, featuring live music and five true stories told live, with no notes. For tickets, go to WBUR.org slash events.
2: I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines. President Biden is cheering congressional passage of the bill that suspends the debt ceiling for two years and averts a government default. Addressing the nation last night, he said he expects to sign the bill today. Despite passage, the Fitch Credit Rating Agency says the U.S. is still at risk of a credit downgrade. Members of the largest Native American tribe in the U.S. are voting today in a leadership election. The Cherokee Nation is deciding whether to hand Principal Chief Chuck Hoskin Jr. In another four years. He is among four candidates, seeking the tribe's top position. And Hockey Stanley Cup final begins tonight, game one of the best of seven between the Vegas Gold. Golden Knights and the Florida Panthers is set to be played in Las Vegas. I'm Joel Snyder, NPR News.
13: Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older. nprwineclub.org And from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin spoke at an international defense summit this weekend in Singapore and laid out a U.S. strategy for rearming itself and its allies in the Asia-Pacific region. The secretary also called on China to reopen lines of communication between the two countries' militaries.
7: For responsible defense leaders, the right time to talk is any The right time to talk is every time. And the right time to talk is now.
0: But during his speech, the U.S. and Canada each sailed a warship through the Taiwan Strait. Of course, this angers China, and Pierre Assembly Fang joins us from Singapore. Thanks for being with us.
14: Thanks for having me.
0: And tell us more, please, about uh, Secretary Austin's speech. Uh, what did he lay out as U.S. priorities in the Asia-Pacific area?
14: Well, much of his speech was to show how the U.S. military is reorienting itself back to being a maritime power in the Pacific. Because remember, the last two decades, the U.S. military is primarily in the Middle East. But now they're pivoting back to the Asia-Pacific, which means it's expanding its military drills with Asian partners and allies. Austin talked about sharing new technology with Australia and Japan. And, And one of the big questions is where the u.s china military relationship is headed because earlier this week china rejected an invitation from the u.s for their two defense chiefs to speak Uh, And China has cut off direct communication channels between the two militaries since last summer. Now, last night, the British think tank that organizes this summit called the Shangri-La Dialogue, they conveniently seated Secretary Austin next to China's defense minister, Li Shangfu, at this dinner we were all at. And the two did shake hands. They said hi to each other. But that's about it. And as you just heard in the intro, Austin said the U.S. is ready to talk to China more substantially. But at the same time that he was speaking, the U.S. Navy and the Canadian Navy, by the way, sailed a warship each through the Taiwan Strait near Taiwan, which China claims as its territory.
0: And how did China respond? Any way in particular?
14: Well, China's defense minister is yet to speak, so we will hear more from him tomorrow. But I managed to interview Lieutenant General He Lei. He helps head the Chinese military academy in Beijing. And he dismissed Austin's speech as a gesture for public show only.
15: He says if the
14: two defense chiefs were to meet, we need to first get rid of unilateral sanctions. The U.S. keeps trying to push back on China's bottom line and threaten its core interests, so the conditions were just not there for a meeting. And Lieutenant General Hu is referring to the fact that back in 2018, the U.S. actually sanctioned the man who just this year became China's new defense chief, Li Shangfu. So China wants those sanctions dropped first before they agree to any meeting, and they want the U.S. to back off militarily in the Asia-Pacific, stop those close exchanges with Taiwan. That's the island China claims as its territory, but the U.S. has a strong interest to protect.
0: And Emily, are those conditions the U.S. could possibly meet? Um, I mean, it sounds like they're creating circumstances for more disagreement.
14: You're right, because Secretary Austin just laid out the significant investments the U.S. military is making to buy new weapons, develop new weapons, uh, share those with partners in the Asia-Pacific. And in his speech, he made clear the U.S is not trying to create an alliance like NATO in the Pacific, but China doesn't believe him. They're genuinely afraid this is happening. And China just doesn't believe the promises or gestures the U.S. has made. It's demanding things the U.S. is committed to as critical defense strategy, and it's not going to back away from.
0: NPR's Emily Fang in Singapore. Thanks so much. Thanks, Scott. The Biden administration's new rules at the U.S.-Mexico border make many people ineligible for asylum. One of those rules says can't request asylum in the US unless you've already requested it in another country and been denied. For many that means requesting asylum in Mexico but as James Frederick reports from Mexico City, it is not clear that Mexico is willing or able to be a safe haven.
16: There's a refugee shelter in Mexico City called Cafemin known as a calm, comfortable place people call home while their asylum case is decided. The scene today is chaos. Every bit of space in the common area is taken up by people trying to find somewhere where they can lay down. Every bit of free wall space is taken up by people stacking their belongings. And as you can hear, the place is full of children, families. Over the last week, Café Mine has been overwhelmed like never before. It's built for a hundred people, but five to seven hundred have been showing up at the door every day. It's putting pressure on everything, says Mylène Jean a 26-year-old Haitian here with her husband and 3-year-old son. She says you wait in line for an hour for the bathroom, you wait days for a shower, drinking water is running low too. UNHCR, the United Nations Refugee Agency, is here today providing meals and information about asylum rules. Jean isn't sure if her family will request asylum in Mexico or try to go to the U.S., but she doesn't have much time to think. The overcrowded shelter is limiting stays to one week. Jean says she and her family will likely be back to sleeping on the street. This is extremely painful for me, says the shelter's director, Sister Magdalena Silva. They're between a rock and a hard place. Outside the front door right now are families with babies that were turned away for the day. They're not alone. Every migrant shelter in Mexico City NPR spoke with said they were well over capacity. And they're all angry at the government. Sister Magda says nonprofit shelters are the only ones making an effort. There's not the smallest bit of political will from the government to resolve this humanitarian crisis. As a result of U.S. policy, more people are requesting asylum in Mexico. At the refugee office in Mexico City alone, there have been more than 10,000 asylum requests this year, almost double last year. But beyond nonprofits and UNHCR, there's almost no support from the Mexican government for these people, says Melissa Vertis from the Working Group on Migration Policy. She says the Mexican government simply receives people but does not create the conditions that would allow them to stay. The government prioritizes deportation over integration. Several government agencies did not respond to NPR's interview requests, but the Mexico City government has recently opened three temporary shelters for migrants. All this means that Mexico City is now experiencing what's become common in border cities like Ciudad Juarez and Tijuana. Makeshift camps of migrants sleeping on the street. For the last few months, a quickly gentrifying neighborhood popular with tourists has had a new fixture. It's a really stark contrast here. On one side of the street is this park, where there are hundreds of migrants, most of them Haitians, camped out. And on the other side of the street, there's a cute little restaurant, a nice coffee shop. It's just a really striking difference. This makeshift camp near the refugee office has been cleared by authorities several times, but continues to reappear as migrants have nowhere else to go. I spoke to Milus Santos at the camp. She's also from Haiti. I'm waiting for documents from the refugee office, she says. We're all waiting for the same thing. But the paperwork is confusing. For now, Santos and her husband just want work permits so their family can afford somewhere to live. Then they'll decide if they want to stay in Mexico or keep going north. She says it's really hard having her kids sleep in the park. They have no other choice but to live like this until God provides help. At this point, Santos said she doesn't expect help from any government. For NPR News, I'm James Frederick in Mexico City.
0: Edward Snowden became a household name 10 years ago after sharing classified information about the National Security Agency surveillance of U.S. citizens. Whether history counts him as hero or traitor, Snowden did bring about change. In the years that have passed, we have seen the laws changed. We have seen the programs change. Tomorrow on Weekend Edition Sunday with Aisha, look back at the upheaval in the surveillance community over the last decade. You can listen by asking your smart speaker to play NPR for your station by name. It's a month into the strike by film and television writers. What's been the effect on what we can see or will be able to see in succeeding months? Leslie Goldberg is TV editor at The Hollywood Reporter and joins us now from Burbank, California. Thanks so much for being with us.
17: Thanks so much for having me.
0: The strike by the Writers Guild of America began May 2nd. A lot of the spring season had already been scripted, filmed produced, but late night shows, for example, have had to suspend production. What's the effect? What have we seen or not seen?
17: Well, the late night shows were, of course, the first to go down. And what continues to happen is members of the WGA are picketing studios as well as picketing scripted productions that are still filming right now. And the amount of filming that is taking place in Southern California continues to dwindle. And members of the WGA are now out in force in Georgia, which is a big production hub as well because of the tax incentive program there. So they are now picketing locations and productions. And a lot of these networks and streamers have said, we're going to be okay. We have content, we have high profile, new scripted series and movies coming. And what the Guild is trying to do right now is shut down that pipeline.
0: What shows have been disrupted the most? Well, production on a lot of shows has been either shut
17: down for a day, which can cost studios between $200,000 and $300,000 per day. Billions has been impacted um, with multiple days of, of shutdowns because of picketers who have found the filming location for that. Um, here in Los Angeles, Loot, the Apple show starring Maya Rudolph, was immediately shut down. The Shy* Chi in Chicago... I mean, right now, anything that is filming is going to be the target of the, the WGA, especially if it's on the location.
0: Hmm. What about the the rise in shows that are called reality? Uh, and I, I, I put that in air quotes. Are they impervious to writers? Many of them are, yes. And that's one of the ways that
17: a lot of the studios and streamers went into strike prevention mode, and that was to greenlight a lot of new Reality shows are unscripted shows. So ABC, for example, will air a show in the fall called The Golden Bachelor, which is an older gentleman looking for love after the loss of his wife. And that is going to be targeting an older demographic that typically tunes in for ABC's game shows like Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy. And they're trying to really please affiliates with programming like this. Fox is doing a, a show where they're, they're going to try to send
0: celebrities to Mars Excuse me, I didn't I I I you mean the first person on Mars might be Tony Danza?
17: <laughs> I don't think they're actually going to try and send anyone to oh, Mars. Right. I think it's just, you know, the, the training for it. So it's basically anything that you can put celebrities in that doesn't involve scripts. That doesn't have to be written by members of the Writers Guild. And the cost of doing a scripted show has continued to rise over the last 5 years, while unscripted shows, it's not the same. You can make them on the cheap. And they rate at this point because as we've seen in the industry, linear ratings have dwindled because the way individuals watch and consume television has dramatically changed. People stream. They watch when they want and they watch however much they want.
0: And, and what does that do to the status of the strike? Because it, it seems to me that the more the unscripted shows succeed, uh, is it making it more difficult for the writers to latch on with properties if there's going to be fewer productions, even when production resumes?
17: I, I don't think that the rise in Unscripted is going to hurt the writers because there is always going to be a demand for the next Ted Lasso, for the next Succession. These are, mm-hmm. are hit shows that bring awards recognition and drive tune-in and subscribers. There's always going to be a demand for original stories.
0: Any indication that any kind of settlement is at hand based on, on your reporting?
17: Well, the AMPTP and the Negotiating Committee from the Writers Guild have not gotten back to the table since the strike was declared in early May. Right now, there is no date for the Writers Guild and the the studios and streamers to get back to the negotiating table. So your guess is as good as mine right now.
0: This looks like a fall full of reruns.
17: Well, reruns and unscripted shows, and that's what you've seen. The longer that the strike goes on, the next victim will be the fall schedule. So... No new episodes of Law & Order and so forth until well after the strike is over.
0: Our family saw the last episode of Ted Lasso and loved it. Same. I I hope all those writers have have good and rewarding work to do very soon.
17: I I do too. It's a good creative group for for a a really lovely show that came along at just the right time when we needed it the most.
0: Leslie Goldberg, uh, TV editor at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks so much for being with us.
17: Thank you for having me.
0: listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. A chicken named Mike ran around for 18 months with its head cut off. Farmer Lloyd Olson severed Mike's head one day in 1945. That's what poultry farmers do. But Mike escaped being an entree by surviving. His head was gone, but vital organs, including brain function, remained. And Lloyd Olson took their show on the road. Over 600 people lined up a day to get a glimpse of Headless Mike. Today, Mike's hometown of Fruita, Colorado, holds an annual festival in his honor. And festival director Mackenzie Kimball joins us. Ms. Kimball, thanks very much for being with us. Yeah, of course. All right, let's begin with Mike. Uh, When I asked the question, why did he captivate so many people? I think I know. Who wouldn't want to see a Headless Chicken?
15: It's pretty exciting actually, because the story, like you said, happened back in 1945. And for a long time, it it wasn't really like common knowledge in the city of Fruta. It wasn't a popular story in the 70s, 80s. And um, in the late 90s, a local Rotarian brought it up at one of their meetings in relation to history of the town. And um, it happened to be that one of the recreation directors was a part of the Rotary Club as well and thought that it might be an interesting thing to bring the community together and celebrate this chicken's will to live and celebrate a little bit of quirky fruta history. And so they decided to make a festival and it kind of reincarnated the story of Mike. Hmm.
0: How, How did he manage to survive and live for 18
15: months? So they actually took him to the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. And there were actually some scientists that took a look at him and basically discovered that The base of the brainstem was still intact, which is kind of, for people and animals, basic functions. He actually was pretty normally functioning. Um, Lloyd talks about in interviews that he would still try to kind of like preen and um, peck. And he he really behaved like a a pretty normal chicken because of all that was left behind, even without the head.
0: Oh, my word. Uh, What do you you folks do with the uh, Headless Mike Festival?
15: We've had a lot of different iterations, but the current festival, it's kind of main feature is a peep and wing eating contest. So we have the little marshmallow peeps as well as chicken wings. This year, we're really excited. We're adding a history tent that talks about Mike himself, the festival, a myth-busting board, and a bunch of information about uh, what the festival came to be.
0: You know, I find myself getting misty-eyed thinking about Mike, and, and maybe this is the whole inspiration of the festival I mean what a what a will to live
15: the person who started the festival I actually know her quite well and was talking to her about you know what was it about this story that made you all want to start a festival you know and she said first of all it was so exciting to celebrate somebody something's will to live and secondly, they just wanted the community to have something fun and silly that would bring everyone together. You know, it's it's not political. It's not any particular emphasis on one thing. It's just part of our history. And it's something that would make our community proud and just give them a space to enjoy each other's company.
0: Mackenzie Kimball, director of Fruit of Colorado's Mike the Headless Chicken Festival. Thanks so much for being with us.
15: Well, thank you. I really appreciate the time.
0: This is NPR News.
8: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. More details are coming to light about what prompted federal officials to demand that the MBTA improve worker safety protocols. The Boston Globe obtained documents showing that in April, a worker was injured by a 2,000-pound weight on the blue line. The next day, a Green Line driver ignored a signal and did not stop for contractors working between the Boylston and Arlington stations. Federal regulators cited these incidents and others when they ordered the T to improve worker safety. The T has until Monday to rewrite its worker safety plan. A section of Boston will become a festival this weekend. The downtown Boston Block Party features food and drink specials from local restaurants, performances from local bands, and lawn games. It kicks off on Temple Place at noon today and tomorrow. It's 53 degrees in Boston. A high surf advisory is in effect through tomorrow night. Some showers around today, temperatures in the mid-50s.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. And the Cape Playhouse in Dennis Village, opening June 7th with a Fats Waller musical Ain't Misbehavin', a sassy celebration of swing music. Tickets at capeplayhouse.com. You know that phrase, strength
18: in numbers? Well, that's how WBUR really works. I'm Meghna Chakrabarti. The strength of our journalism comes from combining contributions from tens of thousands of listeners every year. This coming Monday through Thursday, WBUR will have a brief but important fundraiser. The goal? 700 listeners becoming monthly contributors. Be one of them. Help us off to a strong start by giving right now. Just go to WBUR.org.
13: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com bankingforbusiness. And from The Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive nature.org slash solutions. This is NPR.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Luis Alberto Urrea, please tell us about the photo. Three women smiling at the front of your new novel, Good Night, Irene.
1: Well, my mother was in uh, Clubmobile Corps for the Red Cross during World War II, and they were known in the vernacular as donut dollies, And these women uh, drove two-and-a-half-ton GMC trucks with galleys on the back with uh, donut cookers and coffee machines and record players all along Patton's route with the Third Army but have been forgotten by history. So in honor of my mother and her best friend Jill, who drove the truck, I decided to, to bring them back.
0: Luis Alberto Urrea, who's been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in nonfiction, turned to fiction to tell the story inspired by his mother, Phyllis McLaughlin, and her friends. He joins us now. Louise. thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, sir. The lead characters of your novel, Irene, eh, kind of your mother, and, yeah. uh, and Dorothy, uh, eh, kind of Jill. Yeah. They have different backgrounds, but
1: they shared the hazards of the front lines, didn't they? Oh, they certainly did. Yeah, they couldn't have been more different. You know, my mother was a Manhattan socialite, had uh, a kind of a Greer Garson obsession. You know, she thought she was a 40s movie star. She called everyone darling. (laughs) And Jill was a very realistic Hoosier woman, you know, from Indiana, very intelligent. And, uh, you know, I think they became each other's rolling sanctuary under duress. Mm.
0: You're a, a great novelist when you've turned your hand to fiction, and, you know, you you should write a great novel. But even if you yeah. wanted to make this a nonfiction story, you, you found that would have been difficult.
1: Yeah, I couldn't have done it because the records are gone. The records building the Red Cross had with all of the, the Clubmobile core information burned down, I believe, in the early 70s. And also most, if not all, of the World War II donut dollies have passed on. Mm -hmm. So um, we thought Jill was dead. My mother had suffered a terrible, at the end of the war, uh, wounding. And uh, it involved an awful crash in the Bavarian Alps off the side of a cliff. And the only thing she would say about it is we never found the other girl. And I thought, the other girl, that must have been her. It must have been Jill, this this darling Jill she always talked about. And it wasn't. You know, as we were researching, we found materials written by Jill, Jill Pitts Knappenberger. And through some investigation, we found that she was alive. She was 94 at the time. And when she got on the phone with me, she said... You must come see me, but don't wait until I turn 95 if you catch my drift. Oh, my gosh. And so I thought, I'm already in love with this woman. We went down there, and when she let us in the house, there was a portrait of my mom on the wall looking like a 40s movie star. And she said the thing that launched the book. She said, I drove the truck, but your mother brought the joy.
0: Let me ask you to talk about some of the toughest stuff, yeah. the the hell that indeed they went through. Because yeah. um, the young women in the Clubmobile were at the front lines. They were part confessor. They were crushes. They were object of desire. They were maternal substitutes. Yes. A lot
1: to carry. I think it was too much, honestly. Um the way I came into this story was twofold. One was my mother's nightmares. She had terrible nightmares and she was scarred from her wounding at the end of the war. Her legs were, were the, her upper legs were just torn apart. Um, but the other thing was that she had an army footlocker that the army provided her, um, even though she was Red Cross. And within it were was stuff that she had brought back from the war. And I had strict orders never to open it. And you know what it's like being a boy. You know, as soon as mom's gone, you open the trunk. And inside was a folio of photos she had taken at Buchenwald. Patton asked them to accompany them to liberate Buchenwald. They didn't know what they were getting into. and. Uh, she took photographs of the corpses on the ground. And she told me, I took those pictures until I grew ashamed of taking those pictures. And she said, but I have been ashamed every day of my life since that I didn't keep taking pictures, that I stopped. I don't think they expected to be at the front lines. yeah. Um, So, yeah, they, they saw everything. And they were, I think, expected to... Keep the boys hopeful, you know, give them a taste of home. Um, So, of course, coffee and donuts. They would passed out chewing gum. They passed out candy bars. They sometimes brought mail, you know, with that little record player. They would play the hits for them over the loudspeaker. And they were fully aware that many of those boys that they were flirting with or feeding, they would never see again that they might be the last friendly faces those boys ever saw. And I think the toll of that was quite heavy.
0: I mean, um, you carry that forever, don't you? Uh,
1: there are different responses, which I find interesting. My mother was kind of destroyed by it. And, um, I think it drove her mad by the end of her life. Um, Jill was a completely different creature, had it together. You know, like I said, we met her when she was 94. She lived to 102. And uh, she was just a fountain of information. And when she got overwhelmed, which she did sometimes, she would put her hand over her eyes and say, I'm going to be sad now. Hmm. And it lasted 30 seconds, 40 seconds. Then she'd put her hand down and go on. She had everything put in its place. And my mother couldn't keep it contained.
0: What do you hope readers of this fine novel will, uh, will learn from your characters, thinly
1: described, uh, your mother and her friend? The response of women so far has been overwhelming and beautiful and heartbreaking. And, you know, I, I just, I, I keep telling everybody our worst sin, I think, is writing mom off, writing granny off writing Aunt Eva off, and when I talk to young folks, I tell them, your mother keeps telling you that dang story you're so sick of hearing. One day she will be gone, and you will wish to God you'd paid attention because you've let that piece of important history disappear. So, you know, I guess just a a thank you and a, a tribute to these women who shouldn't be forgotten.
0: Luis Alberto Urrea, his novel, Good Night, Irene. Luis, thank you so much for being with us.
1: Thank you, Scott. It's always a privilege to talk to you.
0: Next time you tell a child, come on now, use your words. Maybe they won't be the tame ones you'd hoped for. CNN highlighted this week some studies from the past few years that insist swearing can be good for you. Yeah, bet you're whatever, really. The headline message is that swearing helps you cope with pain. Richard Stevens, head of the Psychobiology Research Lab at Keele University in Staffordshire, England, told CNN back in 2019 The professor... This is an effing professor, mind you, says that swearing, cursing, sets off a jolt of adrenaline, which reinforces the body's hallowed defense reflex. You're triggering an emotional response in yourself. This sob scholar of Britain explains, which triggers a stress-induced reduction in pain. Well, I feel better already. Sure, glad our daughters aren't tuned in to hear this. A caution is attached: if you use a lot of curse words, they can lose their sting and power. So, deploy them carefully. Like telling people, B.J. Liederman writes her th- theme music. You hear a song by British rock group Lovejoy, and you might feel shaken from a dream. wake up and it's over is the new ep by lovejoy the band was founded by will gold and joe goldsmith will gold joins us now from albany new york where they're on tour thanks so much for being with us
19: thank you for having me
0: scott it's a pleasure you wake up and what's over give us a hint <laughs>
19: It's <laughs> no it's um i'm a bit of a poet i like my metaphors and you know i feel like that's what i've tried to do there
16: <laughs> yeah
0: some people have observed as i don't have to tell you that your your music has uh, sort of flavors of 2000 post-punk uh, bands like arctic monkeys and the strokes uh, what did you hear in those bands that uh, hit home with you
19: even in the strokes a, a band from the united states i i heard a lot of british culture it felt like the sort of grungy concrete buildings that i've sort of grown up around represented in music but in a in a fun dancy way that i could really get into
0: as if the music was a part of you something like that
19: absolutely mm-hmm.
0: let me ask you about the song consequences
19: it's too late to go you yeah. was that too drunk to-
0: Mr. Gold, it's none of my business, but I don't think this song will do it if you thought it was going to make an apology to someone.
19: <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I've, I've been grappling with the idea that maybe I should work on my apology skills.
0: <laughs> well, I, I'm sure they'd be flattered to have it to result in such a signature song. But um, this is a song that comes from real life experience, I guess, for all of us.
19: I guess, yeah, it's almost a tongue-in-cheek look at the kind of mistakes you make when you're a little bit too drunk.
0: That should be a caution, I guess, for all of us, isn't
19: it? Absolutely, absolutely. Not not that I'm one to dispense wisdom, but I feel at some point I broke my I'm always the silent
0: How does songwriting work with you? Is it a line comes first, a word? the story? Normally it's the,
19: it's the tune first, but I, I have a very big document that I write of everything I feel and, and just little lines I come up with, you know, on my walk to and from shops or whatever, I'll come up with a couple lines. And then when I'm really feeling like I'm in my zone to write, I'll pick one of my previously written tunes and put the lyrics over it that I'm feeling at that moment. It's currently 36 pages for uh, this past couple years.
0: And you just keep adding to it and going over it over and over.
19: Absolutely. I've kind of chaptered it uh, in different stages of my life, so I can very easily draw from different periods to, to get
0: lines from. Let's listen, if we could, a bit to the song, Warsaw. It won't get better. I I assure you, make no mistake, we're all going to end up in the dirt. Well, yes, yes, but, I mean, to uh, to quote Shakespeare's Prospero, or paraphrase, uh, you know, life is a dream rounded by sleep, isn't it?
19: Yeah, I'd say so. We're, we're all just stealing moments from the void, I suppose. Uh, I guess uh, Joe, uh, in that part, Joe actually wrote that part. But uh, he was he was there with me as as he was writing that section. And uh, I believe what the message he was trying to put across is uh, through the duration of the song, I'm harping on about this person who's essentially moved on from me. And Joe's almost looking at it in a nihilistic way. You're too straight-edged to
0: get it. I do anything you ask of me that show. What for? Well, I mean, I mean you, you can view it as, you know, we're all going to end up in the dirt, or you can also view it as, this is what makes the time we have here so precious, isn't it?
19: Absolutely. I would like to write a happy song one day. I just, I don't know, I always, I'm always tantalized by the more pessimistic side of the human experience.
0: Yeah. You're on tour in the United States now. What stories do you tell about us when you get back home to Brighton?
19: American audiences are very different to European audiences. The big takeaway I've had is that I felt a lot more like a performer here yeah. than I do in Europe. In, in Europe, it feels like I'm at a big party and I've been invited and I'm, and, and I'm playing to the room and the room uh, are dancing along with me. Here in America, it's, it's a bit more intimidating. It feels more like I'm on a stage. It feels more like I'm performing to a crowd. This isn't necessarily a good or a bad thing. It's just a, it's a difference that I'm getting used to. And it's very interesting because I don't see myself as a performer.
0: Your songs can be heard almost as um, very short stories about romance, missed connections, quarrels, regrets. Do you hope people take in something from your songs?
19: Absolutely, yeah, that, that's a big part of why I write and why I, I love making music, is to, to hope to connect people in any way. It's obviously a lot of letting off steam, you know, getting my thoughts and feelings out uh, off of my brain and onto a page, but it does also come with the added benefit of seeing other people react and being like, oh,
0: okay, I'm not alone. <laughs> Will Gold of the band Lovejoy, thank you so much for speaking with us.
19: Thank you for having me, it's been an absolute pleasure.
0: weekend edition from NPR News, I'm Scott Simon.
13: Support for NPR comes from this station and from StoryWorth. Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at StoryWorth.com. And from Progressive, Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses, from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. This is NPR.
8: Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Thanks for listening to Weekend Edition here on 90.9 WBUR. A high surf advisory is in effect. 53 degrees in Boston, now some showers around, temperatures in the mid-50s.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Charles River Apparel's warehouse event, Today in Sharon. Partial proceeds support the Wellness Warriors, an active paddling support group for cancer survivors. Simone Lee at the ICA. C.Y. Lee was named one of Time's Top 100. Now on view, ICABoston.org. And Walden Local Meat, partnering with local Northeast farmers to hand-deliver 100% grass-fed, pasture-raised meat right to your door waldenlocalmeat.com On this week's Wait, Wait, actor and director Regina King explains her lifelong crush on
6: Sam Elliott in the movie Roadhouse.
20: Just something about when he has that rubber band in his mouth and he's pulling his hair back and he's about to whoop some it it was just sexy to this
10: little girl. I'm Peter Sagal it's a delightfully confessional new quiz this week. Join us for an all-star Wait, Wait Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR.
17: I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org.
21: WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon, this hour, analysis of President Biden's address from the Oval Office. And we'll ask Democratic Senator Chris Coons about the debt ceiling agreement. Also, Ukraine wants to join NATO, but now acknowledges it's a long way off. Then catching up with the restoration of Notre Dame in Paris and large orchestras are back on Broadway, Philip Sue, who's Guinevere in the revival of Camelot.
15: I feel so lucky that we get to have them there with us, basically being like the ground under our feet. And it's such a beautiful relationship that we get to have with musicians and
3: our
0: storytelling. So we'll get to our storytelling. First, our newscast, it's Saturday, June 3rd,
2: 2023. Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is calling on China to restart direct communication between the world's two most powerful militaries. As he was speaking, the U.S. and Canada each sailed a warship through the Taiwan Strait to highlight freedom of navigation. As NPR's Emily Fang reports.
14: China cut direct military channels with the U.S. last summer. Austin is in Singapore for an annual defense summit and invited China's defense minister, Li Shangfu, for a meeting. But Li refused, so Austin used a Saturday keynote speech to call for greater dialogue.
7: For responsible defense leaders, the right time to talk is any time. The right time to talk is every time. And the right time to talk is now.
14: Another complication? The U.S. has kept sanctions on Li, the Chinese defense minister, since 2018, and China is insisting those sanctions be lifted before a meeting happens. Emily
2: Fang, NPR News, Singapore. President Biden is cheering congressional passage of the bill that suspends the debt ceiling for two years and averts a government default. Addressing the nation last night, he said he expects to sign the bill today. And despite passage, the Fitch Credit Rating Agency says the U.S. is still at risk of a credit downgrade. At least 261 people have died and nearly 1,000 others injured after three trains collided in the eastern, state, eastern Indian state of Odisha. Joe Wallen reports from Delhi.
10: A passenger train derailed and collided head-on with another passenger train, according to a railroad ministry spokesperson. During this collision, a third parked freight train was also hit. The cause of the accident is unknown. Throughout the night, thousands of doctors, nurses and civilians worked to rescue the injured from inside the mangled trains. Anxious families scoured the wreckage for loved ones. The death toll is expected to rise further. India has Asia's longest railway network, but safety standards are poor, and there are several hundred crashes a year on its tracks. For NPR News, I'm Joe Wallen in Delhi. In
2: Turkey, Recep Tayyip Erdogan has been sworn in for his third term as Turkey's president. He took the oath of office following his victory in last weekend's runoff. Here's the BBC's Danny Eberhardt.
0: He's dominated Turkish politics like no other figure since Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, who founded the modern republic a century ago. President Erdogan has already led Turkey for longer than anyone else, 20 years as Prime Minister and President. He'll use his new five-year term to consolidate his brand of nationalist, socially conservative politics rooted in Islam, with the backing of a parliamentary majority. Critics fear a slide into greater authoritarianism. Meanwhile, NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg is in Ankara to attend the inauguration and lobby for Turkey to drop objections to ratifying Sweden's projected accession to the alliance.
2: And you're listening to NPR News.
8: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The U.S. Department of Labor says it is working with the state of Massachusetts to settle an expensive mistake. In 2020, Massachusetts used $2.5 billion in federal pandemic relief money to pay for unemployment benefits, but state funds should have been used to pay those claims. Retailers Association of Massachusetts President John Hurst says he does not want businesses to pay more into the state's unemployment insurance fund to correct the problem. And Hurst says he understands the situation is not the Healy administration's fault.
2: We want to work with them. We want to
0: work with our congressional delegation. We want to find real solutions that make sure our UI system is sound and that our small businesses are not hit with uh, costs that are not their fault.
8: The mistake was caught during a state audit. A section of Boston becomes a festival this weekend. The downtown Boston block party will feature food and drink specials from local restaurants, live music, and lawn games. It kicks off on Temple Place at noon today and tomorrow. The Codman Square Caribbean Jerk Festival returns in person today for the first time since the start of the pandemic. The festival features live music and food as neighborhood restaurants compete to win the award for best jerked food. Lorene DeRosa of the Codman Square Neighborhood Development Corporation says she's excited for local businesses to connect with residents.
5: All of our restaurants, they are family-owned, so we really wanted to showcase that and their families and how important their heritage is to their business. And, you know, Caribbean folks, they show love through food, so it's important to share that with the community.
8: Today's festival runs from 1 to 5 on the grounds of Second Church in Codman Square. The Red Sox are scheduled to play a twin bill against the Rays at Fenway with games at 110 and 610 today. Last night's game was rained out and rescheduled for Monday afternoon. This afternoon the Revs play New York City in the Bronx. It's fifty three degrees in Boston with the high surf advisory in effect. Some showers around today, breezy temperatures in the mid fifties, a chance of some showers tonight. Tomorrow, showers likely, and Sunday's highs in the mid fifties.
10: WBUR supporters include Smart Mouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. Smart Mouth Mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and supercenters, or at smartmouth.com.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for being with us. President Biden is ready to turn the page on a drama that has threatened the U.S. economy for months. The deal raises the debt ceiling and avoids default. Speaking from the Oval Office last night, Mr. Biden described the compromise.
4: No one got everything they wanted, but the American people got what they needed. We averted an economic crisis.
0: The speech was carried live on most networks. NPR White House correspondent Ozma Khalid was watching and joins us now. Ozma, thanks so much for being with us.
5: Good to be here.
0: This was the first time the president has given a speech from behind that big resolute desk in the Oval Office. What point did he want to make for the American people?
5: You know, Scott, he emphasized that this was a win for the country, that the U.S. avoided what could have become a financial catastrophe. It was striking to me that Biden was rather effusive in his praise for the Republican speaker, Kevin McCarthy. But really, I think one of the main messages here was this uh, emphasis on the notion of bipartisanship.
4: I know bipartisanship is hard. And unity is hard, but we can never stop trying. Because in moments like this one, the ones we just faced, where the American economy and the world economy is at risk of collapsing, there's no other way
5: You know, in addition to this emphasis on finding consensus, there's another message that the president was trying to send last night. And I think that was rather political. He highlighted his own political democratic priorities. You know, he spoke about what he was able to protect throughout this process, uh, Medicaid and Social Security chiefly among them, and also about what he still wants to achieve, like uh, raising taxes more on the wealthy and big corporations.
0: Asma, in reaching the steel, Congress performed what is considered to be a basic obligation. Uh, paying uh, the debts of the United States. So why did President Biden choose this moment to make these remarks from the Oval Office?
5: Well, you know, throughout the debate, throughout the negotiations, the president was rather reluctant to talk about the process. Um, And that stood in stark contrast to Republicans who were constantly talking to the press. Um, This White House has made a point of saying that Biden does not negotiate in public. And and I think this speech was an opportunity at the end of the process for Biden to look presidential and above the fray. And, and, you know, it's noteworthy, it came at a time when the 2024 presidential, Presidential race is beginning to heat up and it allows him to provide some contrast with what we saw from the field of Republicans this week who were quibbling amongst themselves.
0: Polling has shown that the American people are really concerned about the economy and uh, a lot of people do not approve of the way they see the president has handled it. Um, does this debt ceiling deal address those concerns?
5: Well, you know, economic data points are looking upbeat. There were new jobs numbers yesterday that were strong. Uh, Inflation has been coming down for the last 10 consecutive months. Uh, but at the same time, this debt drama did create questions about whether the country is really in the clear. Uh, I spoke with a Democratic pollster yesterday, Selinda Lake, who said voters have begun to feel a bit more positive about the state of the economy, but they are nervous about whether or not this stability is really here to stay. Uh, she says that voters need to see these positive economic trends continue for a number of more months in order to really feel confident uh, and ultimately for Biden to get the kind of political credit that he is
0: seeking. NPR White House correspondent Ozma Khalid. thanks so much. My pleasure. And we're going to turn now to Senator Chris Coons, Democrat, of course, from the President's home state of Delaware. Senator Coons, thanks so much for being with us.
22: Good morning, Scott. It's great to be on with you again.
0: Well, nice to be with you, sir. Well, what did this protracted and often dramatic process show about how, how government, Congress, the executive branch do, do business in this country?
22: It shows first, unfortunately, that some in Congress today are so reckless that they're willing to hold hostage the full faith and credit of the United States to try and extract concessions. It also reminds us that President Biden is a pro. He knows how to negotiate. He knows how to get the best possible outcome. And as he said from the Oval Office last night, there was a crisis averted. The American people got what they needed. And he will sign this debt ceiling deal, this budget uh, legislation, into law today. We can all breathe a sigh of relief and move forward with doing the people's mm-hmm. business in Congress.
0: Your fellow Democrat, Senator Merkley of Oregon, voted against the uh, debt ceiling deal, and and in fact, he used the words you just did in an interview with uh, with NPR. He said the president should have done more to prevent this kind of uh, hostage taking. How do you assess well, that? Yeah. <laughs>
22: Well, look, I have joined Senator Merkley in co-sponsoring a piece of legislation I think is important for our future. Um, It's called Protect Our Credit Act, and it would change the way the debt ceiling is raised um, so that we wouldn't have similar hostage taking in the future. Obviously, I disagree with Senator Merkley that President Biden could have done better or could have done more. Uh, Frankly, this was a near perfect outcome given the catastrophic cuts that would have occurred If the bill that passed the House under Speaker McCarthy's leadership had become law, President Biden protected our core priorities, Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. He protected the progress that was made under the Inflation Reduction Act in reducing the cost of prescription drugs for households all over the country, in making generational investments in combating climate change, and in the infrastructure bill. President Biden delivered a result that protects the progress the Democratic majority made in the last Congress, and he averted the worst of the threatened harms that the Republican vision would have achieved if they'd been more successful in these negotiations.
0: The president gave uh, credit to Speaker McCarthy. Um, Do you share that?
22: I think the president was being gracious in victory, and I think he knows how to build and sustain relationships, even with those uh, who oppose him. Speaker McCarthy was sharply critical of President Biden in public many times in the last few months. President Biden largely did not respond. He negotiated in good faith. He negotiated privately, and they got to a constructive result. I think what President Biden is doing is showing the leadership necessary Mm -hmm. to build a working relationship with Speaker McCarthy. Look, Scott, the structure of our country, of our Constitution and our Congress requires compromise. If Republicans and Democrats, if our leaders in the White House and in Congress can't work together, everybody suffers. President Biden knows that. He made clear in his address from the Oval Office last night, he's still swinging. He's still got priorities. He intends to keep fighting for the working people of America, but he also was able to be gracious and show respect for how Speaker McCarthy conducted these negotiations. <laughs>
0: Uh, Despite reaching the deal, a major credit agency, Fitch Ratings, uh, decided to keep the U.S. uh, credit on negative watch. Uh, Our economic correspondent, Scott Horsley, says they point to a steady deterioration in governance over the last 15 years. What do you make of that?
22: Well, that's something we should all take seriously. Frankly, if we had defaulted, it would be a huge win for Xi Jinping and the People's Republic of China for Vladimir Putin and for Russia, we would be weakened at home and abroad. And the fact that we averted default this time is a credit to our current president. Partly what I think that rating agency is signaling is it's not guaranteed that President Biden and Vice President Harris will be reelected. And the alternatives, as we saw in um, some of the squabbling between the different Republican nominees or, excuse me, candidates for president, Many of them, if they were elected president, including the former president, Donald Trump, uh, might well have defaulted. Former President Trump was Mm -hmm. cheering on those in the House majority who were threatening default and considering seriously taking us over an economic cliff.
0: Senator Chris Coons, a Democrat of Delaware, thanks so much for being back with us, Senator. Thank you, Scott. A handful of states in the South have an official holiday June 3rd, to honor Confederate President Jefferson Davis on his birthday. Though there's not a lot of fanfare around it, some of those states still resist calls to remove Confederate holidays altogether. Here's Justin Hicks from Louisville Public Media.
9: Raul Cunningham is president of Louisville, Kentucky's NAACP. And he also knows a lot about Kentucky's holidays.
1: At one point, I was deputy commissioner personnel for the state.
9: So Cunningham knew that Kentucky law observes Jefferson Davis Day. It's still a work day for state employees, and many Kentuckians don't even know it exists. But he says just having such a day in state law sends a message.
1: The fact that you still put them on a pedestal is more disgraceful. I'm not hurt by them. I am offended by them. And resent them.
9: Kentucky is one of about 10 states that still have Confederate holidays on the books. In most places, they come and go unnoticed. But in others, like Alabama and Mississippi, state workers get a day off. In Kentucky, a bill has come up multiple times that would remove Confederate holidays. Chad All is a Democrat who introduced it this year, but it was ignored. We could not get it assigned to a committee to even have a hearing. Oh, by the way... Kentucky was never even officially a Confederate state. But it is where Jefferson Davis was born. Kieran Cox teaches history at the University of North Carolina. She says the holidays started with groups that promoted the Lost Cause, a movement that reframed the root causes of the Civil War at the turn of the century. Now, many Confederate groups are just a fraction of the size, but their holidays remain.
17: They're the Lost Cause leftovers. <laughs> Most states don't officially observe it anymore. For the states that do, it's a waste of taxpayer money is what it is.
9: Florida still has Jefferson Davis's birthday on the books, too. Bob Holliday, a history professor in Tallahassee, thinks if it is observed, it should not be a celebration.
2: I hope they're very somber about it. I don't know very much to celebrate about the Civil War. I hope that they're commemorated as a tragedy, you know, which it was.
9: Meanwhile in Kentucky, Lawmakers say they will just keep trying to get rid of Confederate holidays. For NPR News, I'm Justin Hicks in Louisville.
0: And you're listening to NPR News.
8: In about five minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, you'll hear about developments in Ukraine's bid to join NATO.
23: Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars.
8: The WBUR app makes it easy to tap and listen wherever the season takes you, at the beach, at the park, on a walk, at your desk. Listen live and catch up on anything you missed. Download the WBUR app today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and
21: by Soaring Hawk Meditation Center, celebrating the present moment with a new exhibit on mindfulness located in Littleton, Mass. More at SoaringHawkCenter.com. Zoo New England. Zoo what makes you happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. ZooNewEngland.org. And Good News Garage. Over 5,500 donated cars given to New Englanders in need since 1996. Tax deductions and free towing. GoodNewsGarage.org.
2: I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines. President Biden is expected to sign the bipartisan bill that raises a debt ceiling today. During his address to the nation last night, Biden said the U.S. had avoided disaster through political compromise. Despite the debt ceiling agreement, the Fitch Credit Rating Company says it's maintaining a negative watch on the government's credit because of repeated brinksmanship over the issue. And Churchill Downs is suspending racing operations following the deaths of 12 horses last month, including seven in the run-up to last month's Kentucky Derby. Officials say they're planning to conduct a top-to-bottom safety review. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News.
13: Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older, nprwineclub.org. And from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done, from ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories, More at Staples Stores or staples.com.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Hundreds of Indiana doctors are coming to the defense of Dr. Caitlin Bernard, who was recently punished by a state licensing board, for speaking publicly about providing an abortion to a 10-year-old rape victim. They're speaking out against that decision and warning it could have dangerous implications for public health. And Pierre, Sarah McCammon has the story.
24: In March of 2020, as hospitals everywhere were starting to see extremely sick patients, Dr. Ram Yaledi found himself leading a medical team that was caring for the first Indiana patient to die from COVID.
20: Thank you, Governor. It is uh, not what I want to be talking about today, but want to explain how real this is.
24: At a press conference alongside Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb, Yaledi, a cardiologist in Indianapolis, tried to warn the public that the coronavirus was real, it was in Indiana, and it was deadly.
20: This individual fits into the high-risk categories of being over age 60 and having health issues.
24: So Yuleti was alarmed when Indiana's Medical Licensing Board found last week that Dr. Caitlin Bernard had violated patient privacy laws by speaking publicly about her unnamed patient. Last summer, days after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, Bernard told the Indianapolis Star she'd provided an abortion for a 10-year-old rape victim who'd had to cross state lines after Ohio banned abortion. Indiana's Republican Attorney General Todd Rokita expressed anger at Bernard after she spoke out about the case. Her employer, Indiana University Health, conducted its own review last year and found no privacy violations. But the licensing board took up the case after Rokita complained and voted to reprimand Bernard and fine her $3,000. In an open letter to the board written by Yaledi, more than 500 Indiana doctors say the decision sets a quote, dangerous and chilling precedent.
20: I hate to say, I think this is completely political. I think the medical board could have decided not to take this case.
24: Indiana's medical licensing board has not responded to requests for comment. Another doctor who signed the letter, Anita Joshi, is a pediatrician in a small town called Crawfordsville.
14: I very often will say to a mom who is, for example, hesitant about giving their child a vaccine, well, you know, we have had a 10-year-old
5: who's had mumps in this practice.
24: But now she worries she could get into trouble for those kinds of conversations. So does Bernard Richard, who practices family medicine outside Indianapolis. He says it's part of his job to educate the public just like Dr. Caitlin Bernard did.
4: Due to this incident, I had patients who said to me, uh, I had no idea that someone could even get pregnant at the age of 10. You can easily see how that might be important when someone's making decisions about controversial issues such as abortion. This information matters.
24: An advocacy group for healthcare providers called the Good Trouble Coalition also condemned the licensing board's decision. In a statement, the group noted that the American Medical Association Code of Ethics says doctors should, quote, seek change when laws and policies are against their patients' best interests. Dr. Tracy Wilkinson, who teaches pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, is a coalition member and a good friend of Dr. Bernard.
12: As a physician in Indiana, Everybody is scared, everybody is upset, and everybody is wondering if they could be next.
24: Wilkinson also signed Yaledi's open letter, which asks Indiana's Medical Licensing Board to reconsider its decision to punish Dr. Bernard. It's set to be published as a full-page ad in the Indianapolis Star on Sunday. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Washington.
0: Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky is giving up hopes of having his country join NATO anytime soon. After months of urging that NATO's members admit Ukraine, he acknowledged yesterday it would be, quote, impossible for that to happen before the war with Russia ended. We're joined now by John Denny, research professor at the U.S. Army War College and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Professor Denny, thanks for being with us.
6: My pleasure, Scott.
0: Just a couple of days ago, President Zelensky met European leaders in person and urged them to admit Ukraine to NATO. What do you think changed? Well, I think, frankly,
6: he is uh, merely acknowledging the reality of the situation confronting uh, the alliance and and Ukraine. Clearly, there are members within the alliance, most notably the Baltic states, Poland, that have been pushing hard for NATO to pull Ukraine in sooner rather than later, to uh, offer them otherwise security guarantees. If membership is not immediately possible. Yet, uh, I'm sure uh, Mr. Zelensky's ambassador here in Washington has been informing him that there is still resistance to that. And I think, obviously, the part of the resistance is that the United States and its NATO allies are not terribly eager to get pulled into the war with their own troops.
0: Well, of course, and that raises the question because the the NATO treaty stipulates that an attack on one member country is regarded as an attack on all of them. Is this as fundamental as NATO countries didn't want to go with war to war with Russia? I think that's exactly
6: right, and, and you, you've hit the nail on the head. The key part of the treaty is so-called Article V, and it is the part of the treaty that commits each ally to the defense of all the others if there's an attack on them. Clearly, uh, NATO and the allies are not eager to become involved directly in the war. Now, that still leaves open the possibility of the allies at their summit in Vilnius coming up in just a few weeks in July leaves open the possibility the Allies may offer some clearer path to NATO membership or some other kind of security guarantees short of full membership. Frankly, I still think those two things would be a bad idea right now.
0: Well, let me draw you out on that. You think that if Ukraine formally became a member of NATO, it could frustrate an eventual agreement to end the war in Ukraine? Well, Scott,
6: let me be clear. I think eventually Ukraine does need to be a member of the alliance. I think after the war is over, Membership of Ukraine in NATO is going to be the only way to uh, deter a future Russian attack and all the instability and insecurity that would then have for vital U.S. interests across Europe. But until the war is over, frankly, I think discussing membership for Ukraine in NATO or other security guarantees is uh, is really not a very good idea and a bad thing for Ukraine, uh, actually, because I think it's If there's discussion of this, if there are security guarantees offered, frankly, I I think it incentivizes the Russians to fight harder and fight longer. Uh, This war is going to have to end through a political settlement, and uh, the Russians will not be very eager to end it if they know Ukraine is going to jump into NATO as soon as it's over.
0: Do you think this will be regarded as a setback in Ukraine?
6: I don't think this will be regarded as a setback in Kyiv, so much as it is a statement of reality by the Ukrainian president. Let's remember that he has been a tireless advocate for membership of Ukraine in both NATO and the EU. I don't see that changing, even if he does acknowledge the reality that that membership may not be offered
0: at the Vilnius summit next month. Does Ukraine really need to be a formal member of NATO? I mean, they're, they're getting an awful lot of assistance from member states already, aren't they? They're getting an awful lot of assistance. That is exactly right. But we know that the
6: rhetorical commitments, the policy statements, the agreements that have been entered into between Ukraine and the West or Ukraine and Russia, those things have not protected Ukraine in the way that Kiev and those of us in the West had hoped. Uh, The commitment of NATO to eventually allow uh, this country into the alliance, the 1994 Budapest memorandum between the UK, the US, Russia, and Ukraine. None of those rhetorical commitments really did the job. Uh, It's going to take NATO membership, the commitment of Article 5, and specifically the commitment of the United States to uh, help defend Ukraine eventually once
0: uh, the war ends, and uh, to deter the Russians from another attack. John Denny, research professor at the U.S. Army War College and non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Thanks so much for being with us.
6: My pleasure, Scott. Thank you.
0: The restoration of Notre Dame Cathedral is putting artisans all across France to work. The Landmark at the Heart of Paris is slated to reopen by December 2024, After the devastating fire there in 2019, here's NPR's Eleanor Beardsley.
3: The wooden structure supporting Notre Dame's roof was so vast it was known as the forest. It burned like a forest too. At this 250-year-old carpentry company in France's Loire Valley, they're busy reconstructing it. But you don't hear the whirring of electric saws, it's the chopping of axes that resounds. The oak trees are transformed into long square beams by hand. Carpenter Joseph Canuel
8: explains.
11: We made roofs well before saws and sawmills existed. And this is how it worked. You got the wood in the nearby forest, like we're doing. And yes, we could easily cut this log
20: into two long planks. But keeping the wood fibers the whole length of the beam gives it more resistance.
3: This company devotes itself to France's historical monuments, so its carpenters are used to working with traditional methods. Still, Notre Dame is special, says CEO Jean-Baptiste Bonheur.
16: We've never done something like that before. Uh, The roof frame is dating from the medieval 12th century, and especially just the, the big volume of wood. He
3: says the nave and choir roof needs some 1,400 oak trees, Peter Henrickson is a carpenter from Minnesota who heard about an opportunity to work on Notre Dame through the organization Carpenters Without Borders, a group reuniting those who share a love of traditional methods. He says these hand-hewn trusses are special.
0: Taken from the round tree to a squared timber, all by hand, all with axes. All these timbers are what's called boxed hearts, so the middle of the tree is in the middle of the timber. Notre
3: Dame's charpente, or roof frame, won't be seen by anyone, says Henriksen, so they could have used faster modern techniques. But
0: a lot of people involved with the historic monuments, historic buildings of France, are really enamored with the traditional way of doing it and want to preserve that. And part of redoing the roof as it was is keeping those skills alive.
3: He's using an axe, a little hatchet to really make a smooth line. Edouard Cortez is another carpenter here. He removes parchment thin layers of wood with his axe, which he says was hand forged in the traditional way to resemble what Notre Dame's carpenters would have used.
16: De De Loire, qui done, uh it leaves a magnificent mark on the beams, the same medieval mark found on the beams from Notre-Dame. For me, it is a passion to work with such old tools. You work with your hand, your hatchet, your heart,
11: and your head.
3: Okay, so they're about to lift up the structure. A crane lifts one of the giant triangular frames and aligns it next to the others. A dry run before the final installation atop Notre Dame in the coming months. Then, the removable metal pins connecting the trusses will be replaced by permanent wooden mortise and tenon joints. There won't be a single nail, screw or piece of metal in Notre Dame's roof frame. We want to
4: restore this cathedral as it was built in the Middle Age.
3: Retired General Jean-Louis Georgelin is in charge of rebuilding Notre Dame. He says it's important to be faithful to the cathedral's original artisans that spirit is imbuing the entire restoration.
4: You have people everywhere in France working to restore the stained windows, working to find the stones, working for the organ and here to build the framework, the spire and so on. To meet the
3: five-year deadline, says Georges Alain. They're combining these old methods with the most advanced computer design technology. We're restoring a medieval cathedral, he says, but Notre Dame will also be a cathedral for the 21st century. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Saint Laurent de la Plaine.
0: In the 1940s, competing forces engaged in a bloody civil war in China. In the final days of the conflict, one little girl is trapped on a beach with no escape.
12: 24 soldiers sacrificed themselves on this beach. Three others died nearby. I built this temple to honor the 27 soldiers.
0: Communist soldiers saved her life. All these decades later, she's trying to keep her story and that history alive. That story later today on All Things Considered from NPR News. You can tune into your member station or listen at npr.org. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Some residents and businesses are scrambling to find insurance coverage in California. Many of the country's largest insurers have quietly stopped offering coverage for new homes and businesses. We're joined now by Daniel Venton with member station KQED. Danielle, thanks so much for being with us.
18: Good morning, Scott.
0: Why have State Farm and Allstate uh, insurance companies essentially pulled out of new coverage for California?
18: Yeah, they say that it's too risky, that they need to pull back for their own financial health. Specifically, they're citing increasing catastrophes in California that's led by wildfire, high rebuilding costs, so high that that outpaces inflation, and that their own insurance, the reinsurance market, is becoming more expensive.
0: Can it be said this proves that climate change is driving up the cost of living? for many Americans, in a, beginning with those in California.
18: Yeah, it, it is. I mean, climate change is fueling more disasters, making extreme weather routine around the country, but especially in California. I spoke with State Senator Bill Dodd from Napa. He's been active in sponsoring legislation aimed at reducing catastrophic fires. And here's what he said about this news.
15: This insurance
6: calamity, I would call it that, that we have today is a product of climate change. I got evacuated from my home in 2017 and I have never experienced anything like that in my life.
18: And something that we talked about is that if this trend continues, it could really harm the property and the business market. You know, you can't get a mortgage unless you have full insurance coverage. So if insurance skyrockets, no one wants to buy your house. Higher insurance rates also make it harder to make monthly mortgage payments, and that can lead to foreclosures. Dodd says he already knows people in his district who are going without insurance because they've been dropped from their companies. And that's a different but related issue Um, and they just can't afford forty or fifty thousand dollars a year for a new policy
0: and businesses feel this crunch too don't they
18: yeah absolutely um many businesses like wineries or restaurants they own their own buildings and property Um, so if insurance becomes too hard to get businesses could close their doors people would lose their jobs and potentially more companies would move out of the state
0: florida and texas um of course, uh, are among those states that also face challenges with insurance due to climate change. Is there something different about California?
18: There is. Rates rise slower here in California, owing to a law that dates from the 80s that effectively puts a speed limit on increases for renewed policies. And that's why overall rates in California have not gone up as fast as in Florida or in Texas. What can
0: be done, Danielle?
18: Well, some lawmakers, including Bill Dodd, um, would like to see insurance companies allowed to increase rates on renewed policies a little faster than they currently can. And he hopes that that paired with efforts to increase fire safety doing things like uh, intentional burns or clearing brush may ultimately sort of rebalance the insurance market. There's also proposals to restrict where new homes are built and to encourage the state to do even more to stem fire damage. I mean, but it's really tough because those are long-term solutions to a problem that people are feeling right now.
0: Reporter Danielle Venton, uh, who's with member station KQED out of San Francisco. Thanks so much for being with us, Danielle. Thank you. This is NPR News.
8: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Fire has destroyed an historic church in the central Massachusetts town of Spencer. The fire chief says the fire yesterday likely was caused by a lightning strike. Nearly a hundred firefighters from around 18 departments responded to the scene. No one was injured. The first congregational church in Spencer was built in 1863. The seaport in Boston will feature some airborne athletic feats today. Divers will propel themselves off the roof of the Institute of Contemporary Art as Red Bull Cliff Diving returns to Boston to kick off its World Series. Twenty-four elite divers will dive into the harbor from heights of up to 90 feet. The competition begins at noon. It's 53 degrees in Boston with a high surf advisory in effect. Some showers around today, a breezy Saturday, temperatures in the 50s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by
21: Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. Walden Local Meat, supporting local food in our communities by hand-delivering local, sustainable meat and seafood right to your door. WaldenLocalMeat.com. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR.
11: The show Lost, with its diverse cast, was seen as a model for Hollywood to follow. But in a new Vanity Fair article, cast and crew tell a different story.
18: I would say years later that I began to hear that it was a punishing environment to work on.
11: I'm Eric Deggins. Why is it so hard to shift away from a toxic culture in Hollywood? That's on the next All Things Considered from NPR News.
16: Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
13: Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. And I look forward all week to saying. And now it's time for sports. Horse racing halted at Churchill Downs. Panthers on ice. Can anyone stop them? NBA Finals, Nuggets. Ah. Bring the Heat. Michelle Steele of ESPN joins us. Michelle, thanks very much for being with us.
23: You bet, Scott. Good morning.
0: Uh, good morning. Company that operates Churchill Downs, uh, host of the Kentucky Derby, announced yesterday it will suspend horse racing after this weekend, move the races to a different location. Of course, this comes after 12 horses died at Churchill Downs in just the past five weeks. What do we know about the investigation and what's ahead? Yeah, well, Scott,
23: you know well, and I know, that when people have to put out bad news, there's just something about Friday night. Yes. Right? Absolutely. Yeah, and that's what we saw from Churchill Downs. Of course, they host the world-famous Kentucky Derby. You said it yourself, 12 horses have died Mm. at the track since April, and uh, they've decided to make this pretty historic decision. They're going to suspend all racing operations from June 7th until July 3rd to figure out what's going on. And that can be a pretty heady time for the track. You know, you've got Father's Day there, you've got Belmont to name a couple big draws. And here's the thing, here's what's confounding. They haven't been able to find a commonality between all these horse horse deaths. They do know at least, Scott, that it isn't related to the track. So they're going to take that time to try to investigate and find out what's going on.
0: A lot of people contend it's, it's just horse racing is what's going on.
23: Yeah, <laughs> that's what they're trying to find out because there is something behind the scenes if 12 horses are dying since April. They have done diagnostics of the racetrack, and so far nothing has come up that would um, you know yeah. prompt them to believe that something is awry, so they have to do a little bit more digging here.
0: Uh, game one of the Stanley Cup Finals tonight. The Florida, Florida Panthers take on the Vegas Golden Knights. The Panthers have surprised. Let me put it this way: people who don't know the game, the sport, as well as you do. You've been you've been talking about the uh, the Panthers for a while. What do you look for in this series?
23: Yes, yeah, Scott. You know I know that you're an avid listener of this sports segment, <laughs> and you know that I picked the Panthers to go the distance after they beat the mighty mighty Boston Bruins in round one. Uh, here they are, right, facing against the Golden Knights tonight, Game 1 of the Stanley Cup Final. And, and Scott, we've got two classic hockey markets here, South Florida and Las Vegas.
0: Oh, oh yeah, the history, the history, yeah.
23: <laughs> yeah, Chicago, Montreal, they're not. Yeah. Um, But, you know, I actually think that there's some intrigue here to two Sun Belt teams, neither of whom has won it. And you've got two American-born stars on either side. Of course, I'm talking about Jack Eichel and Matthew Kachuk. A very quick note here on the goaltenders, just diametrically opposed. For the Panthers, you've got Sergei Bobrovsky, one of the most fun names to say in hockey, in my opinion. He is one of the highest-paid goalies in the history of the NHL. He's playing outstanding. Aiden Hill in net for the Golden Knights, he's got more AHL games under his belt than NHL games. He started out the season as a fourth stringer, and the reason the Knights are here is because of that guy. So not bad for Aiden Hill on his third team in three years. Should be an exciting matchup.
0: You know, I I I think they're playing to confirm your judgment of them. I think that I think that's become their big motive. They got the
23: memo. Exactly. They got the memo,
0: Scott. Yeah. Michelle Steele of ESPN, thanks so much. Sure. Open Throat by Henry Hoke is a novel that opens with a singularly arresting sentence I've never eaten a person but today I might the narrator who tells us that humans cannot make the noises of his name but his mother gave him is known by two-legged inhabitants of Los Angeles as P-22 the Puma when real life lived in Griffith Park from 2012 to 2022 every day for him is a struggle to survive the effects of being crowded out of his habitat by floods earth rumblings, and human animals. Henry Hoke, who also directs Enter Text, the literary events group, joins us now. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Scott. Help us understand how P 22, what he has to do just to live every day.
25: Well, I think that It was such an inspiration to me to be living, you know, as a contemporary of this lion because I moved to the neighborhood of Los Feliz, um, right by Griffith Park in Los Angeles around the same time that P-22 crossed the 405. And it was really interesting to think about how much um, P-22 became sort of a stand-in for the, the urban encroachment on wildlife and wild spaces and made me think of how sort of isolated, you can be in Los Angeles. And I think those kind of things were always echoing for me before I left Los Angeles and thought I should write a book about it, and then came to this narrator as the way to do it.
0: What he had to go through to survive the encroachment on uh, the habitat of natural wildlife, but on the other hand, were people right to be afraid of it? I wonder about that. I think that largely
25: people were excited as far as I knew to to possibly encounter um p twenty two I think they were probably afraid more for their dogs, the same way they were afraid of coyotes for their dogs and things like that. But there was, I feel like a kinship with anything wild because I think we all, as Los Angeles residents had a a wild experience of nature um from everything you know the earthquakes, the floods, the drought, <laughs> wildfires that would burn like volcanoes on the hills um, And I think that to think of a you know a larger animal that was going through this. As well, I think there was a kinship for the people of Los Angeles in this Puma. So many fans and fandoms were formed.
0: P-22 finds a common cause with a group of people. Please let me ask you to read a section, if we could. Yeah, sure.
25: When the sun drops below the ridge, I leave the dried-up ravine and go to town. Town is where my people live. There are four of them, and they have three tents set up, just a few layers back in the trees where the hikers can't see. But I see in the dark. The people in town smell familiar to me, a smell like warmth or the woods, not the sweet hiker smell that makes my head hurt. And that's how I found them a while ago and found their pile of trash and the smaller animals that come to eat their trash and offer themselves up to get eaten by me.
0: And these are human beings living in, I guess, what a lot of the world would refer to as a homeless encampment, aren't they? Yeah,
25: this is a small tent group of unhoused people, yeah, in Griffith Park.
0: Does P-22 consider himself the protector of this pack?
25: I think so. I think there's a and there's a symbiosis. Um, you see here there's there's like a the leftovers that P twenty two can can eat or taste. And then there's also this idea of, yeah, um, P twenty two has been and I call my cat has <laughs> Sort of a it's it's formed a separate identity for me, you know, from the actual lion. But Hecate uh Hecate feels this community in the space. These people who are living adjacent to each other in tents and um, you know, sharing food, taking care of each other. Calling it town is like this is the first encounter of like people in place and people forming a small civilization (laughs) on the cat's terms. It's outside of the horror of a freeway that it's crossed and um, the violent past it's had with its own kind when its father sort of, you know, rejects it and hunts it.
0: The puma begins to recognize human words, which is part of the the utter charm of your writing is the wordplay. The city spread out is L-A, E-L-L-A-Y. He overhears people talking about scarcity, and that becomes scarcity. <laughs> What's happening to the puma that he begins to piece that together? Do you think?
25: Yeah, I think that um, these words keep storming around in its head and getting confused. You know, the idea of a therapist as something—is it prey or is it a service? Or you know, is it—is it sustenance? What is it in you know relation to people? And then city, right? Two words being instead of scarcity, which it experiences very acutely. But it um it hears that as a place, like a place we inhabit. And I think that really, some of those things just made sense to me, I think. And so I had a lot of fun making them the ways that the cat is ordering the world.
0: What do you hope we can take from a story set inside the skin of a... It hurts me almost to refer to him as an animal at this point, but I say this... in. With the highest compliment, because we are all animals. Well, I guess that's exactly it. Um,
25: We are all animals. Um, You know, I think that projecting onto animals is something, you know, we do a lot, right? Whether it's our pets or as we've talked about P22, like the idea of a city sort of imagining this cat as a celebrity or sort of projecting our own needs and consciousnesses. And for me, it was really like I was like, well, even like gender and things that this cat and, you know, I myself... Struggle with, or I'm on a journey of. Um,
0: we we should explain, not to give anything away. We're talking about a queer cat here.
25: Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a gender queer cat. This is a cat who is, you know, both homosexual feelings and a struggle with a gender identity, and is both affirmed and denied that identity by various, you know, figures, animal and human in this, in this book. Um, I felt, as far as taking away, I just I feel like. Um, If we can empathize with an animal you know in this kind of crisis situation i think it's important to empathize with everyone who's dealing with climate change and with rampant inequality i think just finding the empathy in in every figure and in how we're all connected around what's happening to our world i think is was really important to me
0: as i wrote it open throat is the new novel from henry Hoke. thank you so much for being with us thank you scott audiences at some broadway musicals this season are noticing the return of something that was once familiar. For years, Broadway orchestras have been shrinking. Some shows have as few as four musicians, but several new productions feature big orchestras again. Jeff London reports.
20: When Sweeney Todd premiered in 1979, Jonathan Tunick orchestrated it for 26 musicians. But in every subsequent Broadway revival, it's used a smaller orchestra. Until now. Attend the tale of Sweeney Todd. His skin was pale and his eye was odd. The new revival of Stephen Sondheim's musical stars Josh Groban and Annalie Ashford, and it features the full complement of strings, woodwinds, brass, harp, and percussion. Tunic says audiences can feel the weight of that large ensemble in the opening number.
4: What happens there is that the brass come in for the first time, supporting. The chorus, except for the low instruments. We hold them off to the second bar. So
7: swing your razor wide. Boom.
4: Swing
18: Swing your this razor wide.
3: This is just such a rarity to have this many pieces underneath you. It's quite overwhelming and
20: spectacular annalee ashford has been in a lot of musicals but sweeney todd is the first time she's working with a pit orchestra this large
24: i think that
3: anybody who has been in the american musical theater in the last 20 years has not had the opportunity to sing with an orchestra this large it's just, frankly, not
20: feasible from
3: a financial standpoint.
7: By the Mr. that's a life I By the Mr. Todd, oh, I know you'd love it.
20: Sweeney Todd's producer, Jeffrey Seller, says using a big orchestra allows audiences to have a, quote, goosebump experience in fact the orchestra size has been part of the revival's marketing strategy i thought we could do it responsibly so that we could make a modest profit for our investors a killing no way a modest profit sure is that worth 26 musicians you bet Finances are one of the reasons producers have given for reducing orchestras. Broadway was shut down by a musician strike 20 years ago over just this issue. But Alex Lackamore, who's Sweeney Todd's music director, says the change in orchestra size is also driven by musical considerations. He orchestrated and conducted 10 musicians in Hamilton. The style of music is changing. Hamilton did not need 26 musicians. But in Broadway's goal in golden age, large orchestras were routine. Orchestra members and actors were rarely miked, so orchestrators had to think about how to balance the sound so that singers weren't overwhelmed. Kimberly Grigsby, who conducts the 30-piece orchestra for Camelot, says the show's two original orchestrators...
21: They get out of the way of the voice. If we play what's on the page and play the dynamics that are given, no one has to be back in the back of the house pulling down the orchestra or pushing the orchestra.
12: Tra-la, it's May, the lasty month of May.
5: That lovely month when everyone goes blissfully
20: Philippa Sue, who plays Guinevere, says she feels supported, not just musically, but dramatically,
15: by the big orchestra. I feel so lucky that we get to have them there with us, basically being like the ground under our feet, and it's such a beautiful relationship that we get to have with musicians in our storytelling.
13: It's mad, it's
3: gay, a libelous display.
20: Camelot is at Lincoln Center Theater, which is a nonprofit. It has the resources to present old shows with big ensembles. They did My Fair Lady, The King and I in South Pacific full out. But new shows are risky and expensive, so musical ensembles are usually kept small. Some Like It Hot, with a jazz score set during the Prohibition, is on the higher end of the spectrum with 17 musicians, says co-orchestrator Charlie Rosen. Outside of revivals,
1: it's incredibly rare for a new musical to have a pit this big. And that's sad, because to get this sound of this era of musical theater and, and MGM movie... This is like the minimum you can get away with. You know, and we're on the small side for that. We only have three strings and they're cranking in there.
20: Annalee Ashford at Sweeney Todd has a suggestion for people who see musicals on Broadway.
13: I just
3: encourage anybody who comes to see any show, but particularly a show with this luxurious, large orchestra that is so rare, to just Take a moment and look down in the pit before you leave the house, because it's just a world of magic down there.
20: For NPR News, I'm Jeff London in New York.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon.
13: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners, available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple, in stores or delivered from hintwater.com. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at SertaPro.com. That's Serta with a C. Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA and Charles River Apparel's warehouse event today in Sharon. Partial proceeds support the Wellness Warriors, an active paddling support group for cancer survivors.
17: I'm Tiziana Deering. From news headlines to deeper dives into issues of real consequence, from morning edition to all things considered, from stories online at WBUR.org to conversations on stage at CitySpace, Everything you get from WBUR depends on a solid foundation, of listener support. Help us get to our June fundraiser goal of 700 monthly contributors to keep our journalism strong. No reason to wait. Give at WBUR.org.
0: I'm On Point Executive Producer, Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUR-Tisbury, and 89one WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's
11: NPR news station.